God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at today is Our God Shall Come and Shall Not Keep Silence, a study of Psalm 50. And then in Psalm 53 we read, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very temptuous round about him. Now let's begin in Psalm 51. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. The context of Psalm 50 is the day of the Lord. It is the day that the mighty God calls men to his day of judgment. And in Psalm 96, 13, we read, Before the Lord he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. The Lord hath spoken and called the earth. And whether men tremble at his summons or rejoice in hope of his justice, all must together take their stand before him. No man shall be able to escape this day of reckoning. And because of this, he should spend his life in fear of God that how he has lived his life might be found acceptable to God. All, therefore, shall be required to gather and hear what God has to say regarding the manner in which they have lived. And in Matthew 13, 41, we read, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And now verse 2 of Psalm 50. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Barnes on this verse. Out of Zion, the place where God was worshipped and where he dwelt. God hath shined, has shined forth, or has caused light and splendor to appear. The meaning here is, that the great principles which are determined the destiny of mankind in the final judgment are those which proceed from Zion or those which are taught in the religion of Zion. They are those which are inculcated through the church of God. God has there made known His law. He has stated the principles on which He governs and on which He will judge the world." Though proud men might reject this, it is out of Zion and out of a small people of the earth that God first purposed to reveal himself to the world. Isaiah 2.3 And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And though Israel was a very few people, still God's light shined out of them. And they were commissioned by God to make known God to the world. Observe also that God as light has shined elements of his person throughout the earth. So that without the Lord's light, the earth and its inhabitants would know nothing but darkness. God in the beginning created light, and only His presence keeps light in men. Genesis 1, 3, and 4. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So also, 1 Timothy six sixteen. Who only hath immortality in reference to the Lord, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Without then both spiritual and earthly light, darkness and night would still be the makeup of all things. Yet though the Lord is light and can only bring good to men, Still those who've acquired a savory taste for sin and its darkness cannot recognize him, 
nor will they possess the desire to be light as he himself only is. Teaching us that when there is a thick darkness that lives both in and around man, then men will have little to no affinity nor affection for God in them. The darkness in both men's hearts and the world which surrounds them, prohibiting them from receiving and appreciating the great importance of God. John 1.5 And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Barnes on John 1.5 The light shineth in darkness. Darkness in the Bible commonly denotes ignorance, guilt, or misery. It refers here to a wicked and ignorant people. When it is said that the light shineth in darkness, it is meant that the Lord Jesus came to teach an ignorant, benighted, and wicked world. This has always been the case. It was so when he sent his prophets, so during his own ministry, and so in every age since. His efforts to enlighten and save men have been like light struggling to penetrate a thick, dense cloud. And though a few rays may pierce the gloom, yet the great mass is still an impenetrable shade. Comprehendeth it not. This word means admitted it not, or received it not. The word comprehend with us means to understand. This is not the meaning of the original. The darkness did not receive or admit the rays of light. The shades were so thick that the light could not penetrate them. Or, to drop the figure, men were so ignorant, so guilty, so debased, that they did not appreciate the value of his instructions. They despised and rejected him. And so it is still. The great mass of men, sunk in sin, will not receive his teachings and be enlightened and saved by him. Sin always blinds the mind to the beauty and excellency of the character of the Lord Jesus. It disposes the mind to receive in his instructions, just as darkness has no affinity for light. And if the one exists, the other must be displaced, end quote. See, though God has shined both out of Zion and through his Son, men, because of their relationship with sin and darkness, have for the most part rejected him. But this shall not always be allowed to be the case. For when the Lord Jesus returns and comes in the glory of the Father, then his light and the brightness of his coming shall both consume and destroy the wicked one. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. It is thus Christ's light and the brightness that is his that shall destroy the wicked one. This time shall manifest itself when Christ returns to the earth to ensure that all that was done either in darkness or through darkness is first revealed and then destroyed. It is at this day when God no longer remains silent concerning men and their sins against both himself and each other that all shall see his righteous character. Verse 3 now. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Benson on this verse. Our God shall come. God will undoubtedly come and call us to judgment. Though now he seems to take no notice of our conduct. The prophet speaks this in the person of one of God's worshipers. As if he had said, Though he be our God, yet he will execute judgment upon us. And shall not keep silence. He will no longer connive at or bear with the hypocrisy and profaneness of the professors of the true religion, but will now speak unto them in his wrath and will effectually reprove and chastise them, end quote. Now Barnes on uh, 53, and shall not keep silence. That is, he will come forth and express his judgment on the conduct of mankind. He seems now to be silent. No voice is heard. 
No sentence is pronounced. But this will not always be the case. The time is coming when he will manifest himself and will no longer be silent as to the conduct and character of people, but will pronounce a sentence, fixing their destiny according to their character, end quote. The Lord's saints cry for God's righteous judgment, even as the Lord's enemies will dread it. The hope of the people of God, therefore, is that God shall declare his divine judgments throughout the earth, even if there is to be judgment upon themselves. It is thus the characteristic of the saved that they love the righteous judgments of God. Hence, for those who possess the Spirit of the Lord, God's judgments are a welcoming thing. They, because they are God's, despise the improper and unfair judgments of man and the many errors men make in improperly discerning anything. As fallen man, whatever he judges, sees almost all things improperly. Blind and sinful men therefore cannot discern or bring proper judgment on anything, and especially so regarding what true religion must consist of. Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is therefore the hope of the saved that with God's coming, the confusion that remains in the world as to what is light and what is not shall be settled. So also, he who loves God loves just as deeply God's righteous judgments even as he despises the sinful judgments of man. True Christians, because they have lived their lives in seeking to do God's will, will find themselves unafraid of God's inspection. Hence, where sinners will be fearful of divine judgment, God's people and sincere believers will anticipate its coming. Their spirits thankful that through God's power and God's will, the Lord will again reign fully over all things in the earth. This desire for proper justice in the earth will remain as strong an emotional force as the saints' love for God. For none can truly love God and love not also His righteous judgments. A desire for divine law to be both executed and fulfilled thus will deeply exist in all the true people of God. Psalm 53b now. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very temptuous round about him. This describes the intensity of God coming to the earth, hearkening back to when also when the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai to Israel. Barnes on this. A fire shall devour before him. The language here is undoubtedly taken from the representation of God as he manifested himself at Mount Sinai. Thus, in Exodus 19.6 and Exodus 19.18, it is said, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire and the smoke, therefore ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And it shall be very temptuous round about him. The word used here means properly to shudder, to shiver, and then is employed to denote the commotion and raging of a tempest. The allusion is doubtless to the descent on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19.16, and to the storm accompanied by thunder and lightning, which beat upon the mountain when God descended on it to give his law. The whole is designed to represent God as clothed with appropriate majesty when judgment is to be pronounced upon the world, end quote. It will be wise for men to remember that fire represents the purifying nature of God, as fire is as much a part of God's holy nature as His grace, mercy, or goodness is. Israel also was afraid of the presence of God 
because of the holy wonder God is. Israel trembling in God's presence because it revealed to them the great glory and power that God is. Deuteronomy 5.25 Now therefore, and this is in reference to Israel, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord, our God, any more, then we shall die. So also, Exodus 20.19 And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Israel's response to being exposed to God's presence prompted them to entreat Moses that God would never again personally speak directly to them. Afraid of the majesty and glorious power of the Lord, Israel thus sought for another way that God could reveal himself. Hebrews 12, 19, and the sound of a trumpet and of the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Israel, because they desired not again to hear directly from the Lord and then be made subject to the great terror of his presence, is what prompted the prophecy to be brought forth that God would raise up a prophet to speak on his behalf. This, of course, we know today is in reference to the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 now. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Barnes on this verse. The ancient fathers of the church and of the generality of modern commentators have regarded our Lord as the prophet promised in these verses. In fact, in the words before us, Moses gives promise both of a prophetic order and of the Messiah in particular as its chief, of a line of prophets culminating in one eminent individual. And in proportion, as we see in our Lord, the characteristics of the prophet most perfectly exhibited. So must we regard the promise of Moses as in him most completely accomplished, end quote. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy that God would raise up a prophet to speak on his behalf. The prophetic line thus is connected to the fact that Israel was afraid to hear from God directly, prompting the Lord to raise up prophets to speak for him. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Teaching us as well, when messengers come in God's name, it is the same as God speaking to men. Men therefore should not think that if they reject prophetic words, especially those spoken by God's Son, that they shall have any less mercy than those who rejected the law of God given to Israel through Moses. Observe also that it makes no difference how the Lord speaks to men, either through fire or through black smoke or through the tender and humble nature of his son. God's judgment, if his words are rejected, the consequences will be the same. Verse 4 now of Psalms. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. The courtroom on the day of the Lord will be filled and shall have as witnesses as attendants from both heaven and earth. Barnes on this verse. 
He shall call to the heavens from above. He will call on all the universe. He will summon all worlds. The meaning here is not that he will gather those who are in heaven to be judged, but that he will call on the inhabitants of all worlds to be his witnesses, to bear their attestation to the justice of his sentence. See Psalms 56. The phrase from above does not, of course, refer to the heavens as being above God, but to the heavens as they appear to human beings to be above themselves. And to the earth, to all the dwellers upon the earth, to the whole universe, he makes this universal appeal with a confident assurance that his final sentence will be approved, that the universe will see and admit that it is just. There can be no doubt that the universe as such will approve the ultimate sentence that will be pronounced on mankind, that he may judge his people, that is, all these arrangements, this coming with fire and tempest, and this universal appeal, will be preparatory to the judging of his people, or in order that the judgment may be conducted with due solemnity and propriety. The idea is that an event so momentous should be conducted in a way suited to produce an appropriate impression, so conducted that there would be a universal conviction of the justice and impartiality of the sentence, end quote. Both heaven and earth will be gathered to observe and be witnesses to God's judgment on all men. Heaven shall be summoned to this divine tribunal so that it may be witnesses to God's righteous judgment to then also agree with every sentence of God that is passed. So that on this great day, God's heavenly witnesses shall agree that all was fair and equitable and according to the Lord's divine laws. Verse 5 now. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by my sacrifice. Barnes on this verse. The word saints here refers to those who are truly his people. The object, the purpose of the judgment is to assemble in heaven those who are sincerely his friends or, as a Savior expresses it in Matthew 24, 31, his elect. Yet in order to do this, or in order to determine who are his true people, there will be a large gathering, an assembling of all the dwellers on the earth, end quote. First Peter teaches us that God's judgments begin first with his own holy people, 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Ezekiel also speaks of divine judgment beginning first in the sanctuary of God. Ezekiel 9, 6. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Like the Jews of old, though there is often great complacency in God's chosen people, believing that just because they are God's people, then personal account will not have to be made to God. No doubt this is a great error, simply because being called by God's name does not mean that we shall not have to give an account for our life. Romans 14, 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Judgment, therefore, must begin with the house of God, because also this is where God's word has been the most openly known. Examination of self will also prove to be far more profitable in preparing for this divine judgment than by men self-righteously judging others. Verse 6 now. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Salah. All of heaven shall give approval that they shall stand with the Lord and for the Lord. God is judge, 
and none shall be able to successfully debate this now. Visible, demonstrable truth. There shall also be no influential testimony able to be brought forth by sinful men of the earth, teaching us that men's defense of sin will mean nothing when all behavior is brought unto the courtroom of God. For then it shall be how men have lived and not simply what they have said, which shall be the ultimate verdict on their life. Man's voice, therefore, shall have no voice at this great judgment of God, other than to give an account of themselves and how they have lived according to God's will for their lives. Verse 7 now. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. It is God because he is God who has right and authority to judge and determine what his own true religion is. God likewise maintaining the right to judge his people because they are his people. It is also the Lord who shall testify and provide evidence against those called to his name. It is one thing if men testify against other men concerning what is sin, and quite another thing when God brings testimony. As God has always been the judge of his people, and nowhere will this be more evident than at the day of the Lord. Uh, Barnes on this verse. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. God himself is now introduced as speaking and as stating the principles on which the judgment will proceed. The previous verses are introductory or are designed to bring the scene of the judgment before the mind. The solemn scene now opens and God himself speaks, especially as rebuking the disposition to rely on the mere forms of religion while its spirituality and its power are denied. The purpose of the whole is by asking how these things will appear in the judgment to imply the vanity of mere forms of religion now. The particular address is made to the people of God or to Israel because the purpose of the psalmist was to rebuke the prevailing tendency to rely on outward forms. O Israel, I will testify against thee in the judgment in view of those scenes and as at that time. I will now bear this solemn testimony against the views which you entertain on the subject of religion and the practices which prevail in your worship. I am God, even thy God. I am the true God, and therefore I have a right to speak. I am thy God, the God who has been the protector of thy people, acknowledged as the God of the nation, and therefore I claim the right to declare the great principles which pertain to true worship and which constitute true religion, end quote. Psalm 58 now. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. God opens up with first what he will not bring charges against Israel for, as there was nothing innately wrong with the bringing of their offerings and sacrifices, but rather that external worship alone is not enough to satisfy God's holy character. The same could be said today regarding merely church observance. Certainly, it is not wrong by itself, but when it lacks spiritual efficacy and being led and fed by God's Holy Spirit, then it is unworthy of the Lord. It is here then, that men often get deceived in shallowly thinking that outward forms of worship are sufficient for a proper worship of God. Yet whenever religion drops so low in form that faith and love are no longer in it, it will fall worthy of God's judgment. Verse 9 now, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls in the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine, 
If I were hungry, the Lord says, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of the bulls or drink the blood of the goats? Bringing all offerings and sacrifices into perspective, the Lord declares, this is the NIV, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. This teaches us that true religion is for man's benefit, to then set his heart right, and that it is not God who needs anything from man. When a man then gives anything to the Lord, including his life, it is not for God's benefit, but ultimately man's. Thus, like all things that God demands from men, they are primarily aimed at bringing first benefit and profit to men. If then we are to observe religion rightly, we shall see that God has devised it for our benefit, as the Lord knows that men without His word and without a following of His will and without His proper divine oversight will only progress towards their own destruction. Observe also that offerings presented to the Lord are primarily aimed at reminding men that all men possess is because of God. Our giving back thanks to the Lord simply reveals that we believe Him to be the source of everything. Happy and blessed is the man then who has believed and trusted in the Lord enough to know that God is the source of all his good. Verse 14 now. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. Here we see the offering that God treasures most. It is the offering of thanksgiving. A man then can judge his faith simply by how genuinely thankful he is to the Lord. Psalm 107, 21 and 22. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men and let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. God's Word also teaches us that there is hardly a sin that is a greater affront to God than the sin of being unthankful. As it is the mark of a fallen and sinful people, that after exposure to God, God is neither glorified nor do men remain any longer thankful to Him. Romans 1.21 Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Any true worship or offering presented in God's church therefore must include offerings of thankfulness. Hebrews 13, 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Hence, whatever worship or service is rendered to the Lord, without true thankfulness being present, we should never be misled to think that our offerings are being joyfully accepted by God. The last days also, before Jesus returns to the earth, will be marked by men becoming increasingly unthankful and unholy in their lives. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, and now unthankful and unholy. Generally lost, therefore, is this truth, that thankfulness is a very important factor for any true worship of God. So also, he who is unthankful to the Lord, and the Lord or His daily benefits, you can be sure, has already walked away from any true fellowship with Him. Ellicott on verse 14, Psalm 50:14, Gratitude and the loyal performance of known duties are the ritual most pleasing to God, end quote. When men therefore carry within themselves an attitude of sincere and genuine thankfulness, it is this that is most pleasing to God. Doing what we are purposed to do for the Lord and being thankful while doing it is therefore said by God to be the ultimate offering He seeks. Verse 15 now. 
and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. When our religion is right and is lived with thanksgiving, and we remain faithful in our duties to the Lord, then God shall hear us in our day of trouble. A man's religion, therefore, if it is proper, shall yield to him God answering his prayers. How then we live shall impact greatly if God hears us and delivers us in our day of affliction. Thus, if men are both thankful and dutiful, then God's promise to them is that he shall hear their cries and respond to their needs in their day of need. Ultimately also, it shall be God's deliverance of his people that causes them to glorify his holy name. Barnes on Psalm 50:15, And call upon me in the day of trouble. This is a part of real religion as truly as praise is, Psalm 50, 14. This is also the duty and the privilege of all the true worshipers of God. To do this shows where the heart is, as really as direct act of praise and thanksgiving. The purpose of all that is said here is to show that true religion, the proper service of God, does not consist in the mere offering of sacrifice, but that is of a spiritual nature, and that the offering of sacrifice is of no value unless it is accompanied by the corresponding acts of spiritual religion, showing that the heart has a proper appreciation of the mercies of God and that it truly confides in Him. Such spirituality in religion is expressed by acts of praise, but is also as clearly expressed by going to God in times of trouble and rolling the burdens of life on His arm and seeking consolation in Him." End quote. Our religion then, which is right in God's sight, will with humility depend on the Lord by seeking through prayer God's divine assistance, calling upon God in our day of trouble, revealing that we are humble enough to know that we need and require His divine help. Self-dependence is also the exact opposite of what true religion inspires. Thus, he who is not humble enough to know that he needs God understands little of what true religion really is. Dependence upon the Lord and not self becoming proof that we are wise enough to know that we need God's power, wisdom, and assistance in all things. Verse 16 now. But unto the wicked, God saith, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? It is an offense to the Lord when men who do not keep his word utter it with their mouths, teaching us that no man should hold forth God's word if he has not fully embraced obedience to it in his life. The wicked are thus defined by their false profession of God while internally being estranged from being connected to the Lord in their heart. Benson on this verse. That thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth. With what confidence darest thou make mention of my grace and favor in giving thee such a covenant and such statutes, pretending to embrace them and to give up thyself to the observation of them? This concerned not only the instructors of the people, such as the scribes and Pharisees, at whom it prophetically pointed, but the hypocritical and formal Israelites in general, who professed to know God, but by works denied Him. And it still concerns all those professors of true religion, whose practice contradicts their profession. And in a special manner, those ministers of the gospel, who, while they teach others, neglect to teach themselves. All such, according to the psalmist here, are guilty of a usurpation and take unto themselves an honor to which they have no title and from which therefore they shall soon be removed with shame and disgrace as intruders, end quote. It is not then enough to simply declare God's word to others if we are not sincerely seeking to obey all of its commands ourselves. Matthew Henry on this, if men's religion prevails not to conquer and pure the wickedness of their hearts, 
it shall not always serve for a cloak. The day is coming when hypocrites will be stripped of their fig leaves, end quote. Verse 17 now of Psalm 50. Seest thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee. The proof that a man is a false professor of both God and his true religion is found by the fact that he hates godly instruction and therefore will put behind himself God's word. Those also who despise God's instruction are likened to beasts that are unable to learn, regardless of the time spent to teach them. Proverbs 12.1 Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. Barnes on Proverbs 12.1 Brutish, dumb as a brute, beast. The difference between man and the brute lies chiefly in the capacity of the former for progress and improvement. And that capacity depends upon his willingness to submit to discipline and education, end quote. It is characteristic of the hypocrite that regardless of the word of God he hears, it is never sufficient enough to change his behavior. Spiritual instruction for the hypocrite ultimately having no real effect at all. Jeremiah 32, 33. And they have turned upon me the back and not the face, though I taught them, the Lord says, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. True children of God, though, will both welcome and desire God's correction in both their hearts and lives. Uh, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. How then men genuinely receive God's reproof and instruction will reveal if they are genuinely following the Lord. Psalm 50, 18. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consenteth with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Whom a man walks with will tell you of what nature he really is. And though men may be professors of religion and bring offerings to God and even do acts in his name, the company they keep reveals who they really are. Partaking then and consenting with sinners will reveal that a man's religion is vain. As none can walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand with sinners, nor sit with the scornful, and not be very much like them. The Jews, though they held an outward form of religion, had no qualms with either theft or adultery, teaching us that when men do not sincerely fear God, even stark sins seem trifling to them. Outward religion also has been proven to do nothing to really change the inward disposition of a man. This work is God's and the Holy Spirit's alone. Verse 19 now. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and to thy tongue frameth deceit. Barnes on this. Thou givest thy mouth to evil. That is, they gave it up to evil. They employed it in evil, in falsehood, malice, deceit, slander, deception, and distraction. And thy tongue frameth deceit. The word rendered frameth means properly to bind, to fasten, and then to contrive, to frame. The meaning is that it was employed in the work of deceit. That is, it was employed in devising and executing purposes of fraud and falsehood, end quote. A man's mouth and what it is used for will reveal the true condition of his heart. Luke 6, 45, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. So also Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked Forth out evil things. When men's mouths are therefore used for evil, we can know that God is not in them. 1 Peter 3.10 For he that will love life and see good days, 
Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. God's word also warns men that every idle word that they shall speak, either about the Lord or others, shall one day be brought before divine judgment. Matthew 12, 36, Christ speaking, But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Benson on Matthew 12, 36, But I say unto you, you may perhaps think, God does not much regard your words, but I assure you that not only for blasphemous and profane, malicious, false, slanderous, and reviling words, but for every idle word which men shall speak, for all light, vain, trifling expressions, for all useless and unprofitable conversation, and all discourse uttered without seriousness and caution, and which does not conduce to the glory of God and the good of mankind, that men shall speak at any time or on any occasion. They shall give an account in the day of judgment. For by thy words, that is, by the evidence of thy words, as well as thy tempers and works, shalt thou be justified, shall be either acquitted or condemned. Since by the tenor of these, the disposition of thy heart is shown and thy true character discovered. Therefore, these shall be produced in evidence for or against thee at the great day. And by this evidence, thou shalt then stand or fall, end quote. Verse 20 now. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. It is the mark of hypocrites that even those to whom they should be closest in relation are slandered. Speaking against even those of their own family shows us how low false religion will go. Betrayal of one's own brother is therefore not an uncommon thing for those whose religion never touches the heart. As many a man has professed a belief in God, all the while his tongue is being used to both hurt and bring damage to his neighbor, yea, even to those of his own house. Observe also, there's no more false religion than that which, though it claims belief in the Lord, in practice devours the brethren. When men then betray those closest to them, they will betray anything. And make no mistake about it, the religious hypocrite does this regularly. Uh, Barnes on Psalm 50:20. now. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. To the general character of the falsehood and slander, there is now added the fact that they were guilty of this in the most aggravated manner conceivable against their nearest relations, the members of their own families. They were not only guilty of the crime against neighbors, against strangers, against persons to whom they sustained no near relationship, but against those of their own households, those whose characters on that account ought to have been especially dear to them. The words thou sittest probably refer to the fact that they would do this when enjoying social contact with them. In confidential conversation, when words of peace and not of slander might be properly expected. The word brother might be used as denoting any other man or any one of the same nation. But the phrase which is added, thine own mother's son, shows that there is here to be taken in the strictest sense. Thou slanderest, literally, thou givest to ruin. Professor Alexander renders it, thou wilt aim a blow, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, Luther, and DeWitt understand it of slander, end quote. Psalm 50, verse 21 now. These things, the Lord said, thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before in thine eyes. The Lord reminds those that he is to judge that his silence did not by any means imply that he had not taken notice. God's long suffering is therefore often perceived improperly to conclude 
that God does not highly despise sin in His people. To this point also, the Lord reminds men that all sins committed will one day be brought before also the very eyes of those who committed them. Barnes on Psalm 50, 21, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. The idea here is that they thought or imagined that God was just like themselves in the matter under consideration, and they acted under this impression, or, in other words, the fair interpretation of their conduct was that they thus regarded God. That is, they supposed that God would be satisfied with the forms of religion as they were, that all He required was the proper offering of sacrifice according to their views of the nature of religion, that He did not regard principle, justice, pure morality, sincerity, even as they themselves did not, and that He would not be strict to punish sin or to reprove them for it if these forms were kept up even as they were not disposed to be rigid on the subject of sin. In some way, all sinners will yet be made to see the nature and the extent of their guilt before God, end quote. Verse 22 now. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Those who only ceremonially carry out religion prove by their actions that they have forgotten God. So also, when the consciences of men no longer view spiritual intimacy with God as vital, then God has long ago been forgotten. Moses foretold of this, Deuteronomy 32, 18, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. It is thus possible to remain in outward forms of worship, even while God has for the most part been completely forgotten. God here also reminds men that if His judgments descend, then none shall be able to deliver men from them. Hebrews 10.31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Psalm 50, verse 23 now. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation or behavior aright will I show the salvation of God. The contrast to outward religious actions is the man who sincerely and joyfully offers praise to God. Hence, the stagnancy and deadness of merely outwardly religious observance is contrasted with heartfelt praise to God. Two things are listed which are necessary to be adhered to in order also for God to show the path to His salvation. First, if men will praise Him, and then if they order their behavior right so that it complies with His will. Barnes on this verse. The idea here is where there is a true desire to find the way of truth and salvation, God will impart needful instruction. He will not suffer such a one to wander away and be lost, end quote. For any man then to find God's salvation, a salvation that only God can give, he must be taught by God. And though God has appeared silent concerning empty religious worship, the time is coming when his silence will be broken, when at the appropriate time our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Amen.